I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. What if? What if? Four years ago, I was listening to more and more podcasts, and at a certain point I thought, like many others perhaps, maybe I could do something like that. In my case, I had plenty of material. I just spent the last decade researching and teaching and writing about all sorts of things related to popular literature and culture. If I could work out how to record and edit and get it out there, then maybe there might be an audience for some of it. And so this podcast was born. And then I realized that I really loved doing it, even more than I thought I would. All the different parts, the research, the interviews, the editing, even making a website, learning how to market the show, all that stuff. And so the show grew, and I joined the Headstuff Podcast Network. And then I started editing a new podcast section on the Headstuff site. I started freelancing, making podcasts for other people, writing for other podcast websites, and on and on. And then Headstuff expanded and opened the podcast studios, and there was a position for someone with all of the skills I'd picked up over the last few years. And now I work in podcasting full-time, and I absolutely love it. But it was such a random series of events. There was a John Barr point, I'll explain that later, when I decided to start this podcast. What if I had decided not to? What if? One of the classic examples that's given like generically for for what ifs around history and for alternate history is the um, for want of a nail. It basically goes for want of a nail the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the man was lost. For want of a man, the unit was lost. For want of a unit, the army was lost. And for want of the army, the war was lost. This is Dr. Glenn Morgan. My name is Glenn Morgan. I'm a curator at the Science Museum um, and I'm also an academic. I did a literature PhD at the University of Liverpool and I'm mainly interested in science fiction, alternate history, and the interaction between um, SF and other disciplines. Dr. Morgan has published two recent books on alternate history stories. In one sense, alternate history is a very specific kind of story, as we'll see, sometimes seen as a subgenre of science fiction, more often as a genre to itself. But in a broader sense, alternate history is something that we're all interested in. We all think about the what-ifs in our life and in the wider world. We all feel relief or regret about certain things in the past. Historians, in particular, have been writing what-if tales, alternate or counterfactual histories, for a very long time. The oldest of those, if you're going for your long histories, it's generally considered to be Livy, um, Roman writer, um, and he wrote a a series of histories of, of the Roman Republic. Um, and uh, he wrote one of them in 25 BC, in which he speculated um, about what would have happened if Alexander the Great had, after bringing all of Greece under his dominion, had decided to turn literally turn left and forge an empire in the West. These types of thought experiments have been around well for as long as people have been writing about history, really. But historians are divided as to their usefulness as a tool. Some are very much in favour, thinking about how historical events might have played out differently. It allows us to think about causality, about the relative importance of certain events or historical figures. It allows us to approach the past from a new angle, to review and perhaps revalue or rethink aspects of the historical record. 
So to use one of the most common alternate history setups, what if Hitler had never been born? Examining this might allow us to focus on the social or economic or political factors in 1930s Germany that may get overlooked or downplayed by a sole focus on Hitler's rise to power. So J.C. Squire, he um, edited this collection of essays, um, If It Had Happened Otherwise, which came out in 1931. And that was the first big collection in English that drew all of these essays together. And it had it had some major historians of the day, um, but it also had um, you know, people like G.K. Chesterton and Winston Churchill in there. So it really blended the kind of literary and the historical, but they're all like non-fiction essays imagining what if historical events had gone differently. Other historians are not so enthusiastic about alternate history as a tool of historical research. To them, there are simply too many variables for anything to be argued methodically or critically. Let's return to another popular Hitler example. Actually, it occurs to me now, you know the way there's Godwin's Law on the internet, the rule that as an online conversation grows longer, the probability of a person invoking Hitler approaches one? Well, it's kind of like that with alternate history. The more stories you have, the probability of one or more of them being an alternate Hitler tale also rapidly approaches one. Anyway, if Germany had won the Second World War and then the atom bomb hadn't developed, then Japan would have invaded, then Britain would have surrendered then, which means Russia, and then the Cold War, which of course means... Etc., etc., etc. And for many historians, this might be fun, but it's just useless as a research tool. It's chaos theory. We're back to the nail in the horseshoe and everything is just speculation. Then there are some historians, such as E.H. Carr, who you know wrote a very influential text called What is History? And he referred to these um, thought experiments in that book, and but he referred to them as um, parlor games, you know, quite dismissively um, and saw no value in them. Luckily for me and Dr. Morgan, and maybe you too, I am not a historian. I like speculation. It makes for great speculative fiction, for science fiction and fantasy and horror and alternate history. Because what we're mostly talking about on this episode is not counterfactual history, not alternate history as a research tool. I'm talking about alternate history as fiction, where this newly imagined past is not the sole reason for the story. It's a context and a setting in which a work of fiction plays out. So, yes, maybe Hitler did win the war. But maybe, like in Robert Harris's well-known 1992 novel Fatherland, it's a detective story set two decades after World War II, in which a precise account of exactly how and when and why Germany won the war is just not important. So this type of alternate history novel also has a long tradition, going back nearly two centuries or maybe longer still, depending on who you ask. The most common candidate is a French novel by um, Louis-Napoleon Geoffroy Chateau, um, and it's called Napoleon et la Conquête du Monde, um, so Napoleon and the, and the Conquering of the World. That's the first sustained novel, you know, in, in a form that we recognise as being a novel um, that we could call point to and say is alternate history. And that's, that's published in France in 1836. And right across the 19th and then accelerating in the 20th and 21st century, alternate history stories have sprung up in all shapes and forms. The genre commonly overlaps with science fiction, especially with time travel or parallel worlds or other similar SF tropes. But it's certainly not just a subgenre of science fiction, as it's sometimes viewed. There are alternative history detective stories, fantasy tales, romances, there's trashy pulp fiction and highbrow literary works. 
I mean, one of the key texts that you could look at and, and potentially another candidate for where alternate history, you could say, starts, uh, if you're going with a ri- with the shortest history, would be something like El Sprague de Camp's um, Less Darkness Fall, which is from 1939. It's the first popular and successful time travel novel where the time traveler goes backwards in time and changes the course of history. Um, so time travel has obviously been around for a long time as a storytelling technique, but it's normally people falling asleep and waking up in the future. Or even when H.G. Wells invents the time machine, he travels to the future. He has no interest in going into the past. Elsprague de Camp is not perhaps that well known anymore, but he was a writer of science fiction and fantasy, as well as all sorts of other fiction and nonfiction. He has a huge bibliography with hundreds and hundreds of novels, short stories, his biography, history, science, and lots more. He's most remembered, generally, for Lest Darkness Fall. It's about a, an archaeologist of Roman history um, who is struck by lightning and ends up being transported back to um, the peak of the Roman Empire. Um, and using his knowledge of the Roman Empire and of Roman history, he decides to try and avert what is commonly called the Dark Ages um, by making sure that Rome never falls. So it's pretty key as like the first science fiction book that really brings in alternate history in a in a big way. It's also really influential because it's the book that um, Harry Turzeldove says got him interested in history and subsequently alternate history. And Harry Turzeldove is an unavoidably huge name in the genre. I could probably add to that rule I mentioned earlier about alternate history tales sooner or later always being about Hitler. The corollary will be that in a random selection of alternate history tales, the chances of at least half of those novels being by Harry Turtledove are extremely high. He has written dozens and dozens of alternate history novels over a career now in its fifth decade. And they're big, whopping books. I mean, he did a PhD in Byzantine history, um, and you kind of can sense a little bit of that in his Byzantine um, approach to alternate history. But, you know, he's, he's this majorly influential figure. Then, if you were pressed to name just one other hugely influential story, it would probably be Philip K. Dix, The Man in the High Castle. Another Hitler won the war story set in a US ruled by Germany and Japan. I think that's the one that really made people sit up and pay attention to the genre of alternate history. That was in 1962. And I mean, it's a key book for Dick as well. Like it's, it's the first book in a, in, a, in a run of really golden classics that he writes. But, um, but it's also the first book that kicks off quite a wave of really top science fiction alternate histories that come out in the in the 60s and 70s. Philip K. Dick stories, as you are probably aware, are a staple of science fiction cinema. Loads of them have been adapted. There's Blade Runner and Minority Report, Scanner Darkly, The Adjustment Bureau and a number of other ones. And the adaptation of The Man in the High Castle was one of Amazon's most high-profile shows over the last few years. But the alternate history story is not really a regular mainstay of film or especially of TV. You have your Doctor Who episodes and there's shows here and there, but not a huge amount really. Dr. Morgan reminded me when we were talking of the 90s TV show Sliders, which I completely forgot about until he mentioned it. And now I have so many memories of watching that as a teenager and I really want to go back and watch it again. It was like a parallel universe show where the characters could slide between different universes and they were always trying to get home to their own universe. A little bit like Quantum Leap, I guess. It was great, anyway. So, 
if there aren't really that many alternate history TV series, there are maybe kind of surprisingly lots of one-off episodes, not of science fiction shows like you might imagine. Coming back to the idea that in a way it's a really natural genre for us in storytelling. If you think about it, there are alternate history show episodes of a lot of shows, including non-science fiction shows. This is something I've been kind of intrigued by. Uh, sitcoms almost always have an alternate history episode. You know, Friends famously does it, but so does Seinfeld, Frasier. That kind of, what if I hadn't got together with the person that I'm famously together with in this show? Or what if we'd done this other thing differently? Like that, it, it's played for laughs, of course, it's in these sitcoms, but it, it it's the only trope associated with speculative fiction that gets into them. You know, there isn't an episode where they time travel or visit an alien world or turn themselves invisible or, you know, any of that stuff. Um, but there are always these what if episodes where we see this kind of potential alternate reality um, for these characters. It's that fascination with what if, especially at a micro or personal level. It's not about wars and era-defining events. It's about personal history. The film Sliding Doors, more 1990s sliding, looks at exactly this. What if Gwyneth Paltrow's character had got on the tube just before the doors closed? Or what if she hadn't? How different would her life have been? Well, incredibly different as it turns out in that film. Much like how our own lives would have been irrevocably changed without 1990s Danish-Norwegian Europop sensations Aqua. And their song Turn Back Time, featured on the soundtrack. <clears throat> right, okay, enough of that. So I'm going to take a quick break to tell you about another great show on the Headstuff Podcast Network. It's a brand new show called The World According to Wikipedia. And I think there's a pretty strong likelihood that if you like words to that effect, you're the sort of person who'll like this show too. You use Wikipedia, we all use Wikipedia, we've all been down those Wikipedia rabbit holes and lost hours of our lives. Well, maybe like you, I don't know, I have never edited a Wikipedia article in my life and I don't really know very much about how it works at all. So this show explores the inner workings of Wikipedia with someone who knows a lot about Wikipedia, Rebecca, and her friend Fanula, who knows nothing about Wikipedia but asks all the right questions. And they have lots of different guests and experts on the show as well. It's great. Have a listen. The World According to Wikipedia is a podcast that pops the hood of Wikipedia and invites you to take a look inside. Each episode, we will talk to someone from the Wikimedia community on topics like why are only 18% of biographies about women? Can editing Wikipedia be a protest or activism? And what is it like for the communities working on the 200 plus Wikipedias that are not in English? Subscribe on your podcatcher of choice and follow us on Twitter at world underscore Wikipedia. The other thing I'm going to take this opportunity to say is hello, if you're a new listener. There have been loads of new listeners since the new season launched, which is fantastic, but I want more. So if you like this show, maybe I think you probably know someone else who would like the show. So can you, maybe even right now, you could pause this episode, share the link with somebody, whatever podcast player you're listening on or wherever you're listening, there's probably a share button. So share the episode, text a friend, shout at a stranger from two meters away, whatever worked. But I'd really like to keep growing the show, keep reaching more listeners. There's definitely an alternate world where you told all your friends about this show and they loved you for it. Make that this world. So back to the show. The discussion around this macro and micro levels of alternative history, the personal sort of what-ifs and the grand narratives of history, 
It brings up another point about history, alternate or otherwise. How do we shape the stories of history? Because the past is always a story. It's always told by someone from a particular point of view. And alternate history scholars sometimes talk about the Jeffroyan and the Tolstoyan view of history. To put it in another way for people who maybe don't know Jeffrey, as in the Napoleon um, at La Conquête du Monde uh, book that we talked about before, or who maybe aren't as familiar with Tolstoy, because who has time to read War and Peace? You might think of it instead as being um, a debate between uh, the great men of history theory, which is you know that popularized by um, the historian, philosopher, and racist um, Thomas Carlyle versus um, that kind of more Marxist or historical materialist view of history. So basically, it's the key drivers of history are one or two important individuals who shape the epoch around in, in which they exist. And, you know, if you look at our history books, you, you find yourself drawn to these key figures, whether they're your Winston Churchills, your Hitlers, your Napoleons... Or is it actually about systems and um, processes that exist that are really driving these things and the, the people are just the most obvious manifestation of those? In our Hitler example, it's the difference between saying, well, if Hitler is never born, then this profoundly alters Nazi Germany, the Second World War, and so on, the Jeffroyan view. Or you take the Tolstoyan view and you say, no, there were so many different factors that went into the rise to power of fascism across the world, so many other factors in play in the rest of Europe, the US, Japan, and so on. So Hitler's just not that important. So a surprisingly good example, I say surprising because you just might not peg him as a writer who would write this sort of novel, is actually um, Stephen Fry's Making History. And basically in that, uh, he sterilizes Adolf Hitler's father by poisoning um, the well in in their hometown. Um, And he he arrives back in the present and uh, is expecting it to be some sort of utopia where the Holocaust didn't happen and and there was no war um, and thus no Cold War either. And, and it's like a much more peaceful era. But actually, it's worse because someone else just rose to power in Hitler's place. Like that was always going to happen as far as the structuralist model uh, or the Tolstoyan model says, because fascism was always going to kind of capture Germany in that way. And it, the who is at the helm is just a, it's a detail. So it's that, that's the essence of the debate. The other thing about this debate is that to call the Jeffroyan view one about the great men of history is very accurate. It's about the great men of history, generally the great white European and American men of history, the men whose statues surround us, who our streets and grand buildings are named after, whose names are firmly embedded in school history curriculums and so on. When you write about history, you have to consider whose history it really is. And the same goes for alternate history. There isn't a lot of alternate history um, coming from other countries. I can think of some German examples, a couple of Russian examples, there's some Japanese examples, but the vast, vast majority is by British and American writers. There's a strong white male bias there. I mean, there's some great um, alternate histories by people who don't fit that demographic, but there is a lot of it. And there's also a tendency, I think partly because alternate history, like if you have to pick your turning point for where you want your history to diverge, um, what some people call the John Barr point or the divergence point, 
battles and and military events are really easy pickings for that. And um, you know, th- there's a lot of very dry alternate histories that are very obsessed with kit and strategy and troop movements. And you know, those people demographically are often white and male, not exclusively, of course, but nonetheless. You also get a, a pretty like we're really getting into the the dark, deep, murky end. But you know, history is a political action, and alternate history is as well. And you can find some pretty disturbing alternate histories by people who are who are basically using it as an opportunity to have a do over. You would perhaps be unsurprised to learn that after the Second World War, the second most popular setting for alternate history novels is the U.S. Civil War. And again, there's a lot of different reasons for why that is, but there is a very strong contingent of reasons that it's just a chance to kind of kind of glorify the the South, the Confederacy. And, you know, obviously I find that quite uncomfortable and and difficult, but it, it's worth, you know, it, I think you have to acknowledge that it's there. The flip side of this, though, is that you can use alternate history to give a voice to the voiceless, to work through an aspect of history that gets swept away in the dominant retelling of past events, or to look at our reality by exploring an inverted or upended version of it. Things like um, Ken Stanley Robinson's The Years of Rice and Salt. It imagines hundreds of years of history from the point of the Black Death onwards, except that the Black Death is like twice as lethal as it was. Um, And so the population of Europe is completely decimated. I mean, it was pretty heavily decimated anyway, but it's, it's decimated to the extent that civilization collapses. And so that leaves Europe completely exposed to, you know, the quite scientifically and culturally developed uh, Arab world that exists at that time. It, it leaves them exposed to the approach of the Golden Horde, the Mongolian Empire, which was encroaching to the east at that time. Um, and so there are all these different things, but also it takes Europe out of the picture um, colonially. And so Europe never becomes a colonial force. In fact, it becomes the place that is colonized. It's a really effective book for kind of undermining that kind of Western-centric model of history. Another example is Bernadine Evaristo, best known now as last year's winner of the Booker Prize for Girl, Woman, Other. She has also written alternate history in the form of her 2008 novel, Blonde Roots. It's an alternate history that imagines a a very different map for the world. um, And basically it allows black people from Africa to enslave white people from Europe and run a slave empire in, in the, quote, new world. And so it, it just in inverts that kind of power dynamic. And, you know, that is the kind of move that could be very risky and quite untasteful in a different writer's hands, but she really pulls it off in a different way. And it, again, it kind of really foregrounds those kind of lost black voices um, from the historical chronicle. It's It's a very clever use of alternate history. Or there's Mary Robinette Kowal's multi-award winning The Calculating Stars, which reworks the US space program and focuses on female astronauts. You know, it uses a quite unlikely event, um, a major asteroid collision um, as its kind of divergence point. But it, it uses that to allow her to kind of recast the space program in the United States to be open to more diverse faces. So the, you know, mainly female 
astronauts, but also astronauts of color and other diversity backgrounds and, and other ethnicities. That allows her to kind of put racism in science and in the space race under a microscope. So alternate history is, in the end, a very, very genre. It's often associated with science fiction, and there are some great science fiction alternate histories. But then it attracts authors who would never write SF. It attracts the military historians, as well as readers of romance and particularly detective fiction. There are lots of alternate history detective stories. Check out Michael Chabon's Yiddish Policeman's Union or Joe Walton's Small Change Trilogy. Or read Dr. Morgan's latest book, looking at these texts and many others. And all of these texts allow us not just to reimagine the past, but to interrogate it, to question and reinterpret the stories we're told. And of course, to speculate, to feel regret or relief, to wonder, what if? So that's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. A special thanks to my guest this week, Dr. Glenn Morgan. I'll put links to his work and blog, as well as his co-edited collection on alternate history, it's called Sideways in Time, and his most recent book, Imagining the Unimaginable, Speculative Fiction and the Holocaust. So there are links to those books and lots more. Full transcripts, a list of every work mentioned, all previous episodes, all of this is at wttepodcast.com. You can follow the show as well on Instagram and Facebook at words to that effect. Or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. And as I say, don't live in that alternate reality where you don't tell all your friends about this show. And thanks to those as well who got in touch about ideas for episode 50. I already have one very strong contender. I'm trying to explore how best to do, but I'm still mulling over lots of ideas, so get in touch send me an email say hi on twitter i really love hearing from listeners and i think that's it i'll see you in two weeks this podcast is part of the headstuff podcast network